You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, North Can Chapel, good to be with you again. Uh, I know that you can see me on the other side of the screen. I just want to say thank you so much. Um, so many of you have reached out in the last week. How are we doing uh, as a family? And I just want to say thank you. Uh, Mandy and the kids are doing great. They never got a touch of this thing. Uh, it looks like it's ran its course for me. But thank you so much for your prayers and your thoughts. And um, just so grateful to be a part of a church. Um, we say it all the time, church is family. And you guys have definitely helped our family feel like that these last few weeks. So thank you so much for um, just your care and your prayers. We love you. So let's get into it today. Um, this is a season of preparation, right? You're preparing for uh, holiday parties. You're preparing for celebrations and meals. You're preparing for Thanksgiving dinner guests, maybe. Um, if you're preparing for shopping, give yourself a pat on the back because you are way ahead of our family in that department. But we are hardwired to anticipate, aren't we? We're hardwired to prepare. And it's even in like silly things, like. When you place that Amazon order, how long do you wait before you check the status? Seriously, like I ordered this thing 15 seconds ago and it hasn't shipped yet. Like what's going on, Amazon Prime? What am I paying you for? The other week I won an eBay auction and I kept the browser tab open and I'm like constantly hitting refresh because I need to know that my package is sitting in a USPS distribution facility in Knoxville somewhere. Even this last week for us, we were home in quarantine and so we did some stuff through Grubhub and DoorDash and I'm watching this car move through North Canton traffic because I've discovered that my stomach growls are directly tied to this little red car moving down the street. It's funny, we are hardwired to anticipate. We're hardwired to prepare. So this week starts our five-week teaching series called Preparing the Way. And here's the big idea. Um, I really believe that when we prepare for Jesus well, we will enjoy him the best. Preparation deepens our satisfaction. It heightens our joy. And as the days get shorter, the nights get longer, I think we do well to turn our minds, to turn our hearts toward the idea of preparation. So here's how this is going to work. Every week for the next five weeks, we're going to take a look at an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus from the book of Isaiah. And um, we're going to ring it out. We're going to take a look at everything that Isaiah talks about as it relates to this coming Messiah, who we know as Jesus. But Isaiah wrote more to prepare God's people than any other Old Testament prophet did. And he talked about what this anointed king one day would look like and what he would do. And so we're going to start in Isaiah every week, and then we're going to jump catapulting all the way up into John, the Gospel of John. And we're going to see how Jesus fulfills these prophecies in his life. And then we're also going to talk about why Jesus is so important for 2020. I believe that we need a king, and I believe that we need to prepare for him. And so here's the risk, just to let you know. Um, this kind of preaching and this kind of teaching can get a little heady. Um, and if we're not careful, it can get a little stale. And so just to let you know, um, I want to show you my heart a little bit, because I don't want this to slip into a lecture. I want to let you know how I'm praying for you, as you watch and engage um, online and in person here in these next five weeks. I'm praying for two things. I'm praying that God would use this season of preparation uh, in two ways. One, 
I'm praying that we would treasure God's word. So looking at an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the life of Christ, we're going to do this deep dive into how God's people prepared for this one day future king called Messiah. And I'm praying that we as a church would prepare to treasure God's word together. Secondly, though, I'm I'm, I'm praying that we would prepare our own hearts. One of my favorite lines in any Christmas carol says this. It says, let every heart prepare him room. I believe we've still got to make space for Jesus to speak to us, to teach us things about himself, to show us things about himself, especially in this time. So today we're focusing on Jesus as a joy bringer. Every week we're going to take a look at a different aspect of what Jesus has done what Isaiah prophesied and what he did in his life. And so today it's Jesus as a joy bringer, an Old Testament prophecy and a very familiar New Testament scene that when taken together, teach us that Jesus brings our deepest joy because Jesus meets our deepest need. I'll say that again. Jesus brings our deepest joy because Jesus meets our deepest need. So as I mentioned, we're going to start in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And if you don't know where that is, that's okay. It's almost right in the middle of your Bible. And then just turn a few pages to the right. So Isaiah chapter 12, and we're going to get our bearings a little bit. So a couple things that I want to let you know about Isaiah. Three things just right off the top. First, Isaiah is part of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is 39 books that are all written before Jesus. And you may not know this, but the Old Testament itself is divided up into three parts. You have the law the writings, and the prophets. So what's the law about? The law is Genesis through Deuteronomy, and it tells the early history of God's people. And it's where we meet characters like Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob, Joshua and Moses. And as the name implies, it's where we learn about God's law, these regulations for holy living at this time. It's where we learn who God is, what he's like, what he expects from us, and how he leads his people. And the second section of the Old Testament is called the writings. Now, these are largely poetry. And so we get like Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. These books take these phenomenal truths about God that we've learned in the first five books of the Old Testament, and they put them into metaphor and poetry and proverbial sayings. And it's conducive for public and personal worship. So that's the law, the writings, and then the prophets. Now, there are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament. 17 of them, and every one of them do the same two things. First, there is forthtelling. Prophets speak up. They say hard things in clear ways. They tell people where they've gotten off track from God and how they can get back on track with him. So there's forthtelling. They speak up. But prophets also do something else. They do foretelling. They speak up, but they also look out. They look to a time when someone would save God's people, not by changing their behavior, but by changing their hearts. So where's Isaiah fit into all this? Isaiah is a prophet. So his 66 chapter book, the longest of all the prophets, does two things that all prophets do. Forthtelling, speaking up, and then foretelling, looking out. So keep your eyes open for those these next several weeks. That's where Isaiah fits. So second thing we need to know is who is he and, and when and when did he write? What's going on? So We don't know much about Isaiah, the person. All that we know is that he lived about 700 years before Jesus, so quite a while before Jesus. He was married, he had two sons, and he served as something of a court preacher, almost kind of like a chaplain to the king. 
and he served during the reign of four kings over a span of about 40 years. So we would be right to think about his role as a prophet, almost like a, like a career or like his full-time job. Interestingly, Isaiah's name literally means God has saved. File that one away for a few minutes because that's going to come in handy. Third piece of context we need to know about Isaiah before we dive in, and this is the last one. What is he writing about? Because 66 chapters is a lot of ink. Sometimes Isaiah is called the Gospel of the Old Testament, which is really interesting because he's written 700 years before Jesus. Remember the two functions of a prophet. Forthtelling, speaking up, and foretelling, looking out. When it came time for forthtelling, Isaiah talked about sin with more severity than any other prophet. And then when it came time for foretelling, looking out, he gave us the most complete and compelling picture of Messiah that any other Old Testament prophet gave us. It's almost like Isaiah is standing on a mountaintop at sunrise and he can see this refreshing wind of God's sovereignty blowing in his face and looking hundreds of years in the future, even though things are terrible right where he is, he can see that God has a brighter day coming. And so Isaiah puts pen to paper to describe what he sees, who he sees. And he means it as an encouragement for God's people. So given all that, it's no surprise that the New Testament quotes Isaiah more than all the other prophets put together. So all of that's just context for getting where we need to go, just to give us a sense of our surroundings. So let's dive in. Isaiah chapter 12. Here we go. Remember, Isaiah is looking out for a distant time. He really can't say when, but a time when God's people... We're going to be encouraged by the fact that God's king has been born, okay? Earlier, he called this king a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Quite a Facebook post update for a birth announcement. So Isaiah chapter 12, he imagines a conversation, this corporate conversation, where having seen God's Messiah, the people will say and sing these amazing things together. And here's what he says. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1. He says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy, you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. All this wonderful language. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is a really beautiful prophecy. And you can pick up on all the strong language that, that Isaiah is talking about here. He imagines this conversation and he's talking about this point where God's anger turns away. He says, you were angry with us, but now God, your anger has turned away that you might, what, comfort us. And then he says, God is my salvation. I won't be afraid. He's my strength. He's my song, my comforter. And this is like this explosive call to praise at the end where you see God's people worshiping in this incredibly free way. And it's all centered around this image in verse three, where he says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Drawing salvation from a very deep 
well. What a powerful image that is. Now, this prophecy hung over the head of God's people for seven centuries. 700 years. Could you imagine that? It's like smelling an appetizer in the kitchen 700 years before it makes its way to the table. 700 years before your Amazon Prime order finds its way to your front porch. Do you think you might have asked for a refund? You think you would have canceled your subscription? You think you would have gotten a little hopeless? Just kind of gone, I don't think this is going to happen, guys. Eventual hopelessness. It's not that hard to imagine. So, that's Isaiah. Let's fast forward 700 years. The Gospel of John. John was written by one of Jesus' closest friends. John was Jewish and he would have read Isaiah. In fact, he probably would have memorized portions of Isaiah as a boy in Hebrew school. As an adult, he, along with his brother James, dropped their nets to follow Jesus. And so when John, or when the Holy Spirit inspires John to write his gospel, John includes over a dozen allusions to Isaiah. So let's talk about one of them. Turn to John chapter 4. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, especially as it relates to joy. <coughs> John chapter 4. It's a beautiful setting, the stage here. Let's look in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, most of us aren't familiar with ancient Near Eastern geography. So this idea of a journey from Judea to Galilee and Samaria and Sychar, all eventually finding itself around a well, like these don't mean very much to us. So let's put this into perspective. Jesus is traveling straight north from Judea to Galilee. That's a distance of about 70 miles. That's like walking from where we are here in North Canton straight north to Lake Erie you'd find yourself around Mentor. And in case you're curious, it would take you about two and a half days to walk it. Um, I Googled it, so have fun. It's a long walk. And in the middle of this area, there's this spot called Samaria, almost in the middle. Maybe think of it around like where Stowe is on Route 8. So it's about halfway there. And right in the middle of Samaria, there's this little village called Sychar where there's a well. But here's the thing. Even this is the most direct route. Jesus didn't have to go this way. In fact, the Jewish people actually built roads around Samaria, around Sychar, so they did not have to go there. So it was kind of weird that Jesus actually took the direct route. Well, why is that? Now, here's the thing. Samaria is full of Samaritans. Jewish people did not like Samaritans. They did not get along. Samaritans were outcasts. They were kind of like ancient Near Eastern gypsies. They have a rough reputation religiously and culturally and socially. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, so that's great. But they had nothing to do with prophets, nothing to do with the writings. That's interesting. File that away for a bit. So the text tells us that the disciples and Jesus, they arrive at Sychar around noon. It's likely they left Judea um, the evening before, walked for a while, slept, and have now become just tired from walking. They've probably been walking since that morning. So they pull off on this Route 8 North rest stop. The disciples go and get some food. And Jesus hosts a very interesting conversation. Let's look in verse 7. 
A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, this filling up the water from the well, this is the height of mundane tasks in the first century. It may seem kind of quaint and romantic and nostalgic looking back on it from our modern imagination, but this is the equivalent of dropping the kids off at school, picking up the dry cleaning, and returning the cart to the cart corral at Giant Eagle. This isn't fun, it's not charming, and it certainly isn't the place where you would expect to have a transformative encounter with a rabbi like Jesus. The fact that this woman is alone is also really noteworthy. You didn't go to the well alone. The well is supposed to be a social place, but there she is. She's unguarded. She's not trying to impress anybody. We're going to find out why in just a minute. She's tried to impress people her whole life, and it has failed. This is her no makeup, sweatpants, ponytail moment, falling into the near thoughtless rhythm of her every day-to-day life. I'm not sure if this is true in your experience. It's true in mine. But it's in these most banal moments, these times of thoughtless routine where our minds just kind of drift into autopilot and our souls relax to a natural position that Jesus breaks through in some really incredible ways. More on that in a minute. So they've already had this strange semi-spiritual conversation about water, but watch what Jesus does next. Verse 16. (coughs) Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Now, why do you do that? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Interesting, like kind of getting an insight into worship wars in the first century. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming. Now Jesus is really gonna drive it home. He says, the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, okay, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Jesus is doing a lot of things here, but what I absolutely love is how he refuses to let it be. You get the sense that he's always pressing in, like tiptoeing in closer to this woman's heart. He's like her soul's surgeon. He's getting closer, artfully, carefully, slowly, delicately moving closer to this unacknowledged pain point. And then right when he's about to touch the nerve, her senses go off and she's like, subject change. But Jesus doesn't leave her alone, does he? Jesus backs off, but he doesn't back down. He turns off the heat, but he doesn't turn down the light. Interesting insight, that last verse, verse 26, where he says, I who speak to you am he, literally reads in Greek, he who speaks to you, I am. Do you see how significant that is for someone who just read the first five books of the Bible? How does God reveal himself in the first five books of the Bible? How does he reveal himself to Moses? I am. You see what Jesus is doing here. And then something amazing happens. Let's continue, because now comes the explosion. Verse 27, the disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And now watch what she does. So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Here's the result. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I've ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. So this nameless woman becomes Samaria's first evangelist. She goes and tells everybody in the town, they come out to meet her, and they hold what looks like a two-day-long revival with Jesus. But what I love most about this is how her joy just stampedes over all of her insecurity. It's like she goes, I don't care what they think of me. I've made a mess of my life. I know it. He knows it. Everybody else knows it. I look like I'm a crazy person, but it doesn't matter anymore because I am with Jesus, all because of this simple conversation at a well. Jesus brings our deepest joy because Jesus meets our deepest need. Now, let's back up for a minute. All this is a really familiar story. You've read this before, you've heard it before. What does it have to do with preparing the way for Jesus, specifically joy? We've said Jesus brings our, deep, our deep, deepest joy because he meets our deepest need. But where do we go from here? I want to close with five implications, five things that I want to take away from Isaiah and John and what Jesus did. Five implications. Implication number one, Jesus sees you. Let's get really 2020 for a second. I think one of the most insidious untruths that has characterized our world in these recent months is this feeling of invisibility. Like not in the superhero sense, but like in this socio-cultural sense where this deep loneliness has just invaded our lives to the point where we all have become kind of functionally little islands off on our own. I've felt that at times and it's driving me crazy. I think you felt that probably. Like these times where you go, I'm just this nameless face on the other end of a cold screen. I'm anonymous, I'm unseen, I'm invisible. And before long, you start to wonder, does anybody even know me anymore? 
And here's the worst thing about this untruth, at least for me, is like you don't have to work to find that you believe it. You don't have to try to believe that. It just sort of seeps in from the outside. And the gospel invites you to consider the complete opposite. If this season of preparation rests on one idea, it's that the God of the universe sees you and knows you with a watchful eye. And he knows your suffering. He knows the pain and he sees you. How did God disclose himself to Moses way back in Exodus chapter three. Remember how he introduces himself? He says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in John four. I see you, I know you, I've heard you and I'm coming to deliver you. And so that's the first implication from this thing we need to take away this morning is that Jesus sees you. Implication number two, Jesus is interested in you. He's interested in you. And I say that very intentionally because I know you've heard that God loves you, right? And it can be sometimes very easy to just kind of push that off to the side. Like, well, of course God loves me. That's his job, right? He's got to love everybody. And I think that in our rush to celebrate this benevolent vision of God where he becomes this warm light in the sky, he can actually become apersonal. Of course he loves you. And that's absolutely true. But he is interested in in you, and you not in the generic sense like you, everybody in the world, you in the specific sense. Because that's what this woman at the well is having such a hard time with and what she's pushing against so hard internally. She's okay with this like cold, detached, academic discussion about God. Like, let's keep this out here, can we? Can we talk about worship? Can we talk about whatever? And Jesus says, no, I don't want to talk to you about a God who's interesting. I want to talk to you about a God and introduce you to a God who's interested interested in you. And here's his point. If your theology isn't personal, it's not theology. It's just academic. And the beauty of the gospel is that there is a God who stepped into this world to meet with you. He wants to listen to you. He wants to spend time with you. He will never call you a whiner. He will never roll his eyes at you. You will never exhaust him. You will never tire him out. So I want to invite you to consider something that maybe you've never considered before, is that Jesus is interested in you. Implication number three. Now, this is where this gets a little bit tougher. Jesus wants to interrupt you. You ever consider the idea that Jesus' birth and Jesus' ministry and everything that Jesus was about is the great interruption? Right? If you know your biblical history, you've got all the prophets back here. You got 400 years of silence where like life is just like moving along, nothing crazy is happening too bad. And then wham, incarnation. Jesus interrupted everything, this collision between heaven and earth that changed the ballgame. I think that's how Jesus works on a global level, but I think that's also how he works on a personal level. And it bears out in the Gospels. You see, Peter and Andrew, they're just fishing. And Jesus says, hey, drop your nets. Zacchaeus, he's just trying to get a better view. And Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house. Even Paul just cruising along. And Jesus says, hey, stop. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus interrupts these crazy points in our life that seem very basic and very fundamental. Dropping off your kids, picking up the dry cleaning, cart corral at giant eagle. Jesus loves to interrupt these things, these seemingly inconsequential moments. Why? Because Jesus wants to show us something about himself. And he usually interrupts us when we least want him to which kind of begs the question, if Jesus was trying to interrupt you, would you notice? 
Are you too busy? Would you hear him? Do you have ears to hear if he was interrupting you? If you did notice, what would you do? Would you change your direction? Would you stop? Would you welcome his interruption? Would you push him off? Would you try and change the subject? Nestled in the middle of all of this is this wonderful missiological principle. And here it is. Explosive growth can happen if we're simply willing to be interrupted by Jesus in the common places of life. Great revivals don't happen in packed stadiums and packed churches. Great revivals happen when the ordinariness of our lives collides with the extraordinariness of Jesus because Jesus redeems common things in an uncommon way. It doesn't matter if it's a well in Samaria or if it's a minivan on Main Street. And so what should we take from this? Live an interruptible life. I don't know if interruptible is a word, but we're going to make it one this morning. Live an interruptible life. We need to stop deifying, glorifying the busy life and equating the busy life with the virtuous life. Because according to Jesus, busyness may actually be a liability. It's probably slowly dulling our spiritual sensibilities. But once Jesus interrupts you, he wants to take it further. And this is implication number four. He wants to interrupt you, but Jesus wants to reveal your need. Jesus wants to reveal your need. Everybody has this deep soul level need. The trouble is we're just terrible at diagnosing them. We need Jesus to show us what our needs are. The woman at the well, she thinks she has a worship issue. She actually has an identity issue. She thinks she needs clarity about where she should worship, right? But what she actually needs clarity about is who she is. And as hard as she works to dodge the issue, change the, the subject, obfuscate the obvious, Jesus masterfully turns this conversation about abstract theology into a conversation about deep identity. So for me personally, and this may be true for you, Jesus wants to reveal what I want to hide. Usually. He wants to reveal what I want to hide. And I've gotten really good at hiding it because it's just become layered over with the passage of time and the selective hardening of my heart. So when it comes to revealing our need, this core sin issue that we have, Jesus does it differently than everybody else. Let's go back to this woman for a second. Remember, she's there alone because other people have revealed her need to her in a way that told her that she was damaged goods, that she was terrible, that pushed her away pushed her out, marginalized her, and hurt her. But Jesus, who never minimizes or excuses sin, reveals her sin to her, this deep need, and he does it in a way that is strong but also very gentle. So how does Jesus reveal our needs today? Do like the clouds part or something? No. I think Jesus reveals our needs to us when we pray. We take this time and we say, okay, God, show me. Show me where my life is not lining up with your plan for me. Show me. And that's a really courageous prayer to pray because you might not like what you see. But when Jesus pulls back the curtain on your sin, welcome him because he is gentle and he's very strong. One step further, actually, before we get to implication number five. If you don't want to know your need, don't bother following Jesus. But if you do want to know him, you can trust him because he's gentle and he's strong. So implication number five, more than anything, Jesus wants you to experience his goodness. It would be a very cruel person who would interrupt your life, reveal your need, and then leaves you to figure it out on yourself. 
That person would not be a savior. That person would be a masochist. And aren't you thankful that Jesus is different? Jesus wants you to experience his goodness. It's interesting that even after Jesus tells this woman that he's the living water, which is a pretty bold claim, the dots still don't connect, right? I mean, they're literally at a well pulling up literal water and Jesus goes, oh, great, object lesson. I'm the living water and it still doesn't click for her. Like I would have thought that's when everything would have lined up, but it doesn't. When does she get it? He interrupts her. He reveals her need. She's got a sin issue. She's been hiding truth for most of her adult life. And then Jesus drops this truth bomb on her in verse 24. Let me read it one more time. He says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then you can almost hear her drop her water jar. And she says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. What's he saying? He's saying, you do have a need and I want to carry it for you. I want you to stop hiding. Let me handle your hiding. I want you to stop feeling shame. Let me carry your shame for you. I'm strong enough. You can trust me. So 2,000 years later, here we are. Let me suggest something to you. I think Jesus is still trying to convince some of you of his goodness, his sufficiency, but you're holding on to something. And my word to you is give up. Stop trying. You can trust him. He's strong enough and he's good enough. I don't think I have to tell you that it's not a coincidence that Isaiah imagines a salvation scene that features a well. And he imagined Messiah's coming is going to look like, and he tells this audience with joy, you will draw water from wells of salvation. And then 700 years later, here's Jesus doing exactly that. And so my question, have you been to the well? Do you know the salvation that Isaiah prophesied about and that Jesus showed us? Have you had that moment at the well with Jesus like the Samaritan woman did? Have you experienced his goodness over your sin? Jesus brings our deepest joy because Jesus meets our deepest need. So I can't wait to see what God's going to do in these next couple of weeks together in this series. Let's commit to treasuring his word together and let's commit to preparing our hearts in this season. Let me pray for us. Father, I just marvel at your goodness, at your wisdom, at your sovereignty. And Isaiah can look across mountain peaks 700 years to see something and then Jesus did it because it was the exact thing that we need. We need our souls laid bare before you to see all the stuff that we want to hide, but then also see your grace just come in like a flood and overwhelm that. God, you're so profoundly good. Let us be encouraged by that this morning, God. Use your spirit in our lives right now to encourage those who are hiding, to draw them out. Father, we love you and we say thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. 
Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.